So good to be together this morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome to Lucy's. My name's Andy. I'm part of the ministry team here at New Penn, and it is great to uh, be with you this morning as we worship together um, and hear from God's Word. Um, if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we're currently in the book of Joel, which is in the Old Testament, and it's a great read. Um, it's a challenging read. It's, uh, it's got a lot of uh, content that on the surface for us in our context is hard to understand. But once you peel um, through some of the initial layers, you get to see the, a real picture of the heart of God towards us, his people. And, and that's um, the joy that we have when it comes to deciphering some of this stuff in the Old Testament. Really significant and really important that we do that. Uh, but let me give you a bit of an oversight of where we've been so far um, before we get into today's passage. Um, Judah is the setting of this book. Uh, part of the uh, kingdom of Israel. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, they, they conquered at different parts by different people. Uh, and Judah in the, the southern kingdom is where we're at uh, for the book of Joel. Uh, it has been devastated by vast hordes of locusts. If you know anything about locusts, they kind of take everything in their path and destroy it. Not like unlike small children, but probably in a more um, detrimental kind of way. The locusts have destroyed everything. Uh, the fields of grain, the vineyards, the gardens, and the trees. Judah's been transformed into a desolate wasteland where once it was a really rich and, and fertile sort of uh, agricultural area. And Joel symbolically describes the locusts as this marching human army. And it views this all as divine judgment coming against the nation for her sins. And the book's actually highlighted by two significant events. The first one is the horde of locusts, which is where we've kind of been sitting for the past couple of weeks. And the second one, which we'll get to as the, the story continues, is actually an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, which is good that we have that to look forward to. Uh, but in the midst of this locust invasion that had completely destroyed the land and everything in it, the economy has crashed and the worship of God has been stopped as a result. It's a national disaster, and God has actually permitted it to happen. And then, on top of all of that, Joel then sounds the alarm that an even greater disaster is imminent. An unstoppable, destructive army of the Lord is coming as judgment against sin, and no one can endure it. And it's to God's people that this warning is given. Have you ever had a season in your life where it felt like the bad news just hasn't stopped rolling? Where you've sat in this place where it feels like everything has been ripped apart and has been decimated and you're just sort of sitting in this barren wasteland and then more bad news comes on top of that. It's kind of the message that we left last week in, you know, on top of all the bad stuff that's already happened, Joel brings a warning to the people that it's going to get worse from here. You know, we live in interesting times. There's economic uncertainty, there's generalised angst in the community, fear and confusion abound. Judah in ancient times has probably more than a few similarities to life in contemporary Australia. We sit in this place as a society at the moment where generally we're afraid about what the next thing is going to be that happens. 
We turn on the news not for some inspiration or some hope. There's good stuff happening in the world, but it seems like the next thing that's going to come out at us is going to be worse than the previous thing that happened to us. Philip Lowe comes on your TV screens and you go, oh, crumbs, what is it this time? You look to which country in the world has now got civil unrest happening. Somebody in the supermarket coughs close to you. I'm not sure whether it's just because I'm absorbing too much news or whether it actually is getting worse, but sometimes it feels like we roll from one catastrophe to another. And maybe, I don't know, maybe because I was like a, a smallish child in the early 90s, it felt like maybe there was a bit of a reprieve in there for a few years where, you know, things were pretty good. Wouldn't it be nice to have a reprieve? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to know in the midst of all the calamity happening around us that it's okay, everything's going to be Okay. And the book of Joel is supposed to remind us that in the midst of despair, in the midst of calamity and chaos, there is still hope. Even when there's chaos, even when God's judgment is upon us as a society, there is still hope. Now, last week we heard of um, Joel's judgment and warning to the people of Judah, and and this week we're picking up the story from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, If you're reading with your Bibles, I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. It's also up on the screen behind you. I'm reading from verse 12 of chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring back the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people's Where is their God? This is God's word. If you want to get an understanding of the character of God, here's a fantastic passage to sit in and reflect on. Now, we can think of God's judgment on the people of Judah as this sort of vindictive punishment. It's easy to, for, for us to interpret God's actions in the first couple of chapters of Joel as this kind of, well, you did this and I didn't like it. So now I'm going to punish you and I'm going to enjoy watching you suffer. People of Judah, you made your bed, now you can lie in it. You can suffer the consequences for your actions and man, this is going to be sweet. This will teach you for ignoring me, and disrespecting me. 
We can see God as being angry and insecure and vengeful. He brings calamity and he brings punishment, and now he exacts his revenge on a wicked human race. Certainly, the narrative of um, people when they uh, maybe don't have a faith background or they engage with the Old Testament, this is, this is what they see. You know, Old Testament is angry God and New Testament is happy God. But it's not that simple. Here's what's actually going on in this passage. The people of Judah have turned away from God. Their hearts, their love, and their devotion have been placed elsewhere. The, the attitude and the place in their heart that was meant to be given and devoted upon to God has been given to other things. God is calling them to repent. The choices they've made are causing the people of Judah to live differently to how they were created to live. And it's not good for them. And so God is trying to get their attention. He's calling the people of Judah back into relationship with him the way that they were designed to live. And his heart's cry to his people isn't, there, take that. It's return to me. Leave behind your idols. Leave behind your false gods. Leave behind your lifestyles of selfishness and self-obsession and come back to me. This is not the action of an insecure deity seeking out retribution from being overlooked and ignored. This is the action of a loving God calling his people back into relationship with him. Yeah, there's sin, absolutely. Both individual and corporate sin, and it's brought about God's wrath. But even so, God is near, and he is beckoning the people to return to him, to repent. And the question of that then, for the people of Judah and for for you and I here today, is... How do we repent? If God's posture is one of welcome embrace, if the first thing God says to his people in the midst of all the calamity that has been brought upon them is return to me, how do we do that? How do we repent? And in verse 13, God tells us. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. God is not interested in us going through the motions. He's not interested in um, the people of Judah doing this ritualistic thing to cleanse them of sin. See, part of the repentance process in these days uh, was to tear your garments as a sign of sorrow and repentance. It would be a public thing. You'd sort of go out into the temple and you you would grab your garments and you would tear them, you would rend them as a a demonstration, a physical demonstration of the sorrow and remorse that you were feeling towards God. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in you tearing your garments and going through the motions. I want you to actually repent. The sacrificial system to atone for, for sins has broken down and you can't actually 
perform the sacrifices and the rituals that you need to do to get right with God anyway. You can't sacrifice an animal when there's no animals alive left to sacrifice. And so in the midst of this, this process where God is calling his people back, he's like, no, don't, 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 don't just go through the motions here. Don't just find an animal and sacrifice it. Don't just go out into the village square and rend your garments and say, sorry, God, here I am again. He's saying, rend your hearts. Tear your hearts open. Rip them open to examine what is inside and what has taken up residence. And do this so that you can return to me with all of your heart. Instead of focusing on the external behaviours of repentance in our context, when it comes to returning to God, you know, we say things like, oh, I'm sorry, God, I'll spend, more, I'll spend more time reading my Bible. I'll, I'll make an effort to come to church a bit more often. I'll, I'll tithe a bit more. Maybe, maybe that'll appease you and make you a bit happier. And none of those things in themselves are bad. But if we equate that with repentance, that's just us going through the motions. Focus instead of, of what lives in your heart. What are the idols? Where is their fear and insecurity? Where are those things that have taken the focus and the attention and your love away from God and onto other things? God says to his people, rend your hearts, not your garments. I'm not interested in you going through the motions of repentance. I'm interested in heart change. And heart change happens when you rend your heart and you tear it open and you expose the things that have taken up residence. See, the, the sin that caused the problem for the people of Judah was a heart issue. So the core issue of repentance starts in the heart of the people, not just a modification of their behaviour. It's interesting for me at the moment... Um, I've done a bit of a deep dive into some, some podcasts because um, I, I, I do that from time to time. It's really good when you're cleaning the house and um, you need something to keep you awake. And um, it's interesting watching and observing what God is doing in his church at the moment. There is a, a season of rending the heart of his people. There has been some stuff that God has seen happen in some of his churches, his global church, the body, and he goes, I'm not prepared to tolerate that behaviour anymore. I'm not prepared to tolerate the idolatry that's taken up. The abuse of power, the love of money. And he's allowing some calamity to happen in the global church around the world as a result of that. The right response for us to do as his people as a result of him doing that is to actually examine our hearts. What are the things that have taken up residence in there that shouldn't be there? What's replaced our love of God? That's not God punishing his people because he's angry with them. It's an opportunity for God to say, range your hearts, examine them, look at what has taken up residence and do that so you can deal with it and return to me with all of your heart, 
without the idols that have taken up residence there because there is not room in your heart for both of us to live there. And that can be a painful and difficult process. How do you face a God of justice and righteousness when you're aware that there are idols in your heart? And I want to suggest to you today that we can do this not because of who we are, but because of who God is. In verse 13, it says this, He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Do you want to know why genuine repentance actually works? It's very little to do with us but it's all about the character of who God is. Despite our sin, despite the idolatry that takes root in our heart, despite the fact that it seems to happen again and again and again, God invites his people to return to him because he is patient, because he is gracious, because he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending the calamity that we undoubtedly deserve. Maybe there's sin that's taken up residence in your heart today. And the idea of confronting a God of righteousness and justice is just a little bit too confronting for you. I want to tell you today that God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. And there's an invitation for you today as you rend your heart before the Lord to come to him. And that is a safe thing to do because he is gracious, because he is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and his posture towards you this morning is return to me. That's good news. That's, that's the gospel. That's why God sent his son to us, so that we could do this process of repentance, of boldly approaching the throne of God because he is gracious and compassionate, because he is slow to anger and because he is abounding in love. And because of this news, Joel then tells the people, right, it's time to act. It's time to get this issue of sin sorted. Call the people to fast. Call the people to join together in worship and praise and turn our hearts towards God. It says in verse 15, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride leave her room. Effectively, what he's saying is, everybody drop what you're doing. Right now. Everyone is invited to join in on the repentance because everyone's contributed to the problem. And it's good news because grace and forgiveness is what's on offer today. And God is still in the business of forgiveness and restoration today. A thousand or so years later after this occurred, 
And Jesus uh, gathers people who are listening to him. And he tells them uh, a story about a father with two sons. And the younger son, he begs his father for a portion of his inheritance, which he gets. And he immediately leaves for a foreign land, where he spends all his money in carefree living. After a while, the son finds himself with no money left. He's starving and he's working in a pigsty, which for someone with a Jewish background is a pretty severe thing to be doing. And after a devastating famine strikes the area, he realises, he sort of comes to his senses and he goes, I should go back home and ask my father for forgiveness. Maybe, maybe he'll let me work in his estate as one of the hired hands. If if he's gracious enough, if he has enough forgiveness, maybe I can sort of come back and and be a servant for him. And so he sets off back to his father's house. And the father's sitting there at home. And it says that, I wasn't going to (laughs) cry. The father sees his kid approaching from the distance. And he rushes out to embrace him. The father goes one step further. He says to the staff, he goes, um, Fine, provide a feast. Get the feast ready. We're going to have a party because they've come back. Get the finest gown you can find and a ring and some shoes. And the father restores the son. He doesn't just wait for him to come back groveling. He runs, he hitches up his robe in the most undignified way and he runs out to meet him. Maybe you're here today or you're listening online and you feel like your sin has made you distant from God today. You're right, it does. That's the nature of what sin does. But that same God, who is righteous and holy, is also compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he sees you today. He sees you far off. And he's not just ready to welcome you home. He has hitched up his gown and he is running out to meet you. There are people here today um, and, and God's call to you is the same call as it was to the people of Judah. In the midst of your sin and your rebellion, return to me. Examine your heart. Repent and return. He'll come running out to meet you today. God is closer than you realise. I'm going to invite the team to come forward this morning. And we're going to do something a bit different. Because when we hear a story like this, where God has subjected his people to some pretty significant stuff, And then he comes and speaks to his people and he says, return to me. And there are some of us here today who I feel really need to hear this message. Because the idea of God being 
compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love is a great theoretical concept, but it hasn't been your experience. And today, I really sense that God wants to break through and speak into some people's lives and their experience of of God in the midst of their sin and their rebellion. And it's not going to be a time of rending your garments down the front or confessing your sin to the person sitting next to you. But there's an opportunity for us today to do what he's invited the people of Judah to do at this time in the journey of Joel, to examine our hearts before him, to allow him to search you and identify those things in your heart that have taken up residence, where he's gone, I'm not prepared to coexist with this thing in your life anymore. But you can return to me. You can repent of your sins and I will come running out to meet you. And so the team are going to uh, sing over us this morning and then invite you to join in a bit later on. A song that talks about a God who is closer than we realize. A God who is the same despite the fact that we might be on the mountaintops of life or we're in the valleys. A God who hasn't gone anywhere, even in the midst of our sin, our rebellion and our idolatry. A God who pursues us just as much as we want to pursue him. And so as the team sing over us and then later invite us to join, there's a couple of questions I'd love for you to reflect on. The first one is, is there sin in my life at the moment that I need to name before God? And the second one, Is there some genuine repentance that needs to take place in my heart? Tearing open my heart and exposing the idols that have taken up residence. And as you do that journey with God, I'm going to invite you to respond the same way that Joel tells the people of Judah to respond. Respond with praise. Respond to God's gift of forgiveness through praise and worship because he is a good God who relents from sending calamity. Thanks, team.